0: We are going to be answering some terrific, fascinating questions today on The Line of
1: Fire.
0: Hey, friends, welcome to the Friday edition of The Line of Fire. You've got questions, we've got answers. This is Michael Brown, but it's one of those rare Fridays where I'm not taking your call. I know I can feel the sigh, but unfortunately, I cannot do a live radio show at the same time that I am in flight overseas. So this is a travel day to Israel and to meet up with our tour group. He'll be coming in just a little bit after me. For a wonderful time. Those of you on the tour group, if you're actually hearing this yet, I cannot wait to meet you in the land of Israel. And God willing, next week we'll be doing live broadcasts, some, most, all of the nights we shall see from the land of Israel, even bringing our tour group in. Those are, those are really fun, special programs as long as we're able to make our connections and do this properly. But I have solicited questions on Facebook. Any question or even an area of difference where someone wanted to get clarification? So I, I see the questions before us. This is gonna be a really, really interesting episode broadcast on the line of fire. So don't, don't post questions on Facebook now. I have already solicited them and I am answering them now on this broadcast. So we'll start with a question from Ruth. Dr. Brown, I've just begun to read the book of Enoch. My question is, have you read it? And if so, is there a particular translation of it that you would recommend? Thank you so much for hopefully answering. Yeah, well, you're one of the first to post your question, Ruth. So, of course, we'll answer. Now, when it comes to Enoch, I have read parts of Enoch. I have not read all of the book of Enoch. And even the book of Enoch, as as we have it, is not preserved completely in a very early form. So... As far as, and then there are there are additional. There's Enoch one, Enoch two. As as far as different books within Enoch, and the earliest evidence we have is from Dead Sea Scrolls in Aramaic. That was not uh, available to previous scholars. Otherwise, the com- the only complete text we have of Enoch is a translation from Aramaic into Ethiopic, or from another language into Ethiopic. So it is secondary. So we don't have the original Book of Enoch or we don't have the original language Book of Enoch, even copies of that, except for fragments at the Dead Sea Scrolls. As far as translations, the old classic translation was R.H. Charles. Uh, He worked, uh, and this is one that he edited. Uh, He produced a famous edition of Old Testament pseudepigrapha So these were external writings falsely attributed to others, etc. That remains in print and available. So the R.H. Charles edited one. There is a detailed critical study of Enoch with translation by Matthew Black, a top Aramaic scholar. That volume I bought many years ago when I was doing some research and study. It's not a cheap volume, by the way. And again, it's going to have technical information. And then... Uh, George Nicholsburg and others have produced a new critical edition of Enoch with a commentary, commentary on the book of Enoch now in, in a couple of volumes in the Hermeneia series. That's expensive and technical. But in short, just remember you're reading an ancient book that was influential in the early church and early Judaism, but ultimately was not considered canonical. So it never became part of the canonical scriptures in Judaism or in Christianity. Of course, they overlap at the beginning fully. So it was never considered canonical should not be read as if it were on a part with scripture, even though there may be parts that are full of truth and there may be words that are attributed to Enoch as quoted in Jude. Now, that being said, if you want a perspective of how influential this type of thinking was, There is the book by Michael Heiser. We did an interview on it last year, Reversing Hermon, H-E-R-M-O-N, where he talks about the larger spiritual issues and the, the spiritual fall that's being addressed in Enoch and that he believes was an issue in the early church that Jesus fixed things on earth, but also in the cosmos. So that book you'll find to be very insightful as well. Michael Heiser's reversing Hermon, Enoch, the watchers and the forgotten mission of Jesus Christ. Even if you don't agree with all of Dr. Heiser's arguments, you'll have to see that this type of thinking was certainly current in New Testament times as reflected, especially in second Peter and in Jude. All right, let's go to the next question. Cameron, what relationship, if any, does the Christian have to the blessings of Deuteronomy 28? I've heard it preached that we get in on those blessings and I've heard the idea be completely dismissed. I don't want to miss out or have false faith, for, some faith that, for something that isn't mine. Thank you, Dr. Brown. You're the man, man. Well, thank you, Cameron. All right. This is actually not as easy an issue to address directly as you might think. First, this was given to Israel on a national level. And if Israel was to obey the Lord, Israel as a nation would be blessed; would be the head, would not not the tail; would prosper, would would loan to others rather than being in debt; would be blessed with health and longevity, etc. If Israel disobeyed, and this you have Leviticus twenty-six, Deuteronomy twenty-eight parallels there. If Israel disobeyed, horrific curses would come on the nation. So on the one hand, this was national and not simply individual. That's the first thing. The second thing, it was part of the Sinai Covenant. So in short, Christians are not under the Sinai Covenant, but under a new and better covenant. If we were under the Sinai Covenant, we'd be putting people to death if they broke the seventh day Sabbath. If we were under the Sinai Covenant, we would burn a witch, practicing witch. If we were under the Sinai Covenant, we'd be practicing every new moon, et cetera. We'd be still going to a temple and offering sacrifices. We're not under the Sinai covenant, and God is dealing with us as individual believers in the midst of a fallen and sinful world. That being said, if a nation was to adhere more closely to God's standards, was to walk in generosity to the needy, was to uphold moral principles on an ethical level before God, was to turn away from idols and worship the one true God, I believe, that God would bless us nationally just as all kinds of sin would bring judgment nationally so for any nation on the planet not under the Sinai covenant i believe many of those principles not covenantally but by the nature of God and by sowing and reaping would still apply and we know proverbs 14:34 a universal truth righteousness exalts a nation sin is a reproach to any people so if America followed biblical compassionate principles internationally and locally, I believe we would be more blessed as a nation, even if we weren't on a totally, quote, Christian nation. And to the extent we turned away from those things, I, I believe that we would be judged either by sowing and reaping or by God being actively involved. But what about us as individual believers? Didn't Jesus promise us tribulation? Didn't he promise us persecution? didn't he say that the world would treat us the way the world treated him? Yes, that's true. And therefore, there is no guarantee that if you follow Jesus and honor him, that you'll be financially prosperous, that you won't get put in jail for your faith, that you won't come under certain demonic attack and things like that. On the flip side, I believe that the new covenant does renew promises of physical health, as a a covenantal blessing under the new covenant. I do believe that in terms of financial principles, that we still do reap what we sow. And as we sow generously, we reap generously. So not under a Sinai covenant, but under divine principles that are reinforced and reiterated in the New Testament and therefore in the new covenant. And that spiritually, even if we're being persecuted, even if we're put out of our homes for the gospel, even if we're put in jail for the gospel, that we can confess spiritually that every need we have is met in Jesus, that we can confess spiritually that we are the head and not the tail, meaning even if we are cast up by the world, hated by the world, rejected by the world, scorned by the world, we are blessed and favored by God. So there is in a sense a spiritual application of everything in the law, but we're no longer under the Sinai Covenant Therefore, my answer is a bit more nuanced than a simple yes or no. Okay, let's see here. Joshua, good afternoon, brother. My question is in regards to the topic of self-defense. As you see in the news, both in the U.S. and around, are ever increasing. As you see on the news, both in the U.S. and around, are ever increasing. So something's ever increasing. I guess the word was missed there. I also remember from your Jewish Objection series that your stance on the Lord's teaching, for example, turn the other cheek, was not calling for passivity. I would like to hear your case for self-defense as loud in scripture. I ask because I don't see Paul or other gospel writers calling for self-defense. I would be corrected if I'm wrong. Okay, let's let's put this in three categories. Category one, what did Jesus mean when he said, turn the other cheek? Category two, what if we're persecuted for the gospel? Category three, what about self-defense in general? Category one, turn the other cheek, is talking about personal retaliation. It it is not talking in context about if someone, say, breaks into your home in the middle of the night, and let's say you, sir, uh, Joshua, let's just say theoretically, you you had a baseball bat in your bedroom just in case there was ever a house invasion, or you were licensed to carry legally gun owner, and someone breaks into your house and is going to try to kill your wife and children. Do you have the Christian right to defend yourself? Well, there, there's zero in the Bible telling you not to. Zero in the Bible telling you that you shouldn't watch over your family or, or protect them. So the, the teaching of Jesus in Matthew five has to do with legal retaliation under the law or an attitude of retaliation, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Rather, someone gives you a backhanded slap, so they, they slap you on the right cheek. So the a right-handed person, that's a backhanded slap that would entitle you to a a fine for publicly being shamed. Yeah, fine. Go ahead. Hit me on the other cheek. That's the attitude in terms of personal retaliation, trying to hurt someone else in a retaliatory way. As far as persecution for the gospel, no, you don't find Paul, the apostles, when they were being arrested by the government for the gospel, trying to fight back physically and kick people away and, and pull out a gun and shoot. So, in that sense, if, if I'm persecuted for the gospel, I bless, I don't curse, and if I can flee for safety, fine. Now, it's 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 another issue, though, if you have an armed conflict, maybe you're living in a country, and, and you are being invaded by enemies, they're trying to kill all the Christians, you have an army that can fight back. Again, I look at that as a different category, but personal retaliation We're trying to defend myself or fight somebody, take them out if I'm being persecuted for the gospel. No, that's a different category. But self-defense in itself, why not? It's a righteous, good thing in many cases.
1: It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown.
0: Thanks, friends, for joining us on The Line of Fire. Hey, would you just lift up a prayer? I am en route to Israel. No, not multitasking. We pre-recorded today's broadcast. I am en route to Israel as you hear my voice. And we've got a very, very full schedule. Our tour group will be arriving several hours after me and then day and night, special activities for the tour group. I'll, I'll be with our tour group at select sites for special teaching every night. I'll be with everybody. We'll be doing special media. I want to get extra time with, so we really want the Lord to move. So please pray. And somebody said, oh, I wish I could be there. Well, hopefully another time, God willing, we'll, we'll be doing these again in the future. But we really want it to be meaningful. I was just talking to the Lord about it the other day, really asking God to touch people that, that this will be the tour of a lifetime All right, I'm not taking your calls. We've pre-recorded this. I've solicited questions on Facebook. So now we go over to Joey. What was the significance of Judas kissing Jesus on the cheek when he was betrayed? Was it typical for men to kiss other men on the cheek within the Jewish culture of that time? If not, why didn't Judas simply point him out or call out his name to reveal his identity? Okay, several parts to that question. Number one, it was cultural, to greet with a kiss on a cheek or kiss on both cheeks. I was just in, in Italy at the beginning of January. And at the end of the meeting, there's a long line of people wanted to greet me with a kiss on each cheek. And in some of the communities, it's just the men that kiss the men like that women that kiss the women. Some it's both kiss both. Uh, Paul's writings in the new Testament greet one another with a holy kiss. That would be like a, a holy handshake or a holy hug today. Christian hug, of course, those are a little different. So, uh, yeah, and, and through the Bible, there's a lot of kissing. In, in fact, in my book, A Queer Thing Happened to America, I rebutted the idea that there was something going on between Jonathan and David because they kissed. doesn't say they made out. It's not some passionate, sensual kiss like, like Song of Solomon relates in the first chapter. But I go through the Bible. If there was something going on there and I got list all these different people that kissed each other. Okay, so this was the standard way of greeting very common around the world in many cultures to this day. However, that being said, why didn't Judas just point him out? That's the depth of betrayal. He was a friend enough to betray with a kiss. He was a friend enough that, that of course, Jesus knew exactly who he was and what he was doing from day one. Think of it, and Jesus treated him the same way and loved him the same way and instructed him the same way, knowing that he was there simply to betray him ultimately, that that's what was going to happen. And that's why he chose one of them as his betrayer, knowing who it was and and what was going to happen. But Satan then takes over Judas. That's what we read. Satan enters him. So this was, this was a big job. So Satan himself takes over and Judas, whose heart was already wrong and destined for destruction. Now worked as a, used as a tool of the devil and just wants to make it look everything's fine and it comes to hi hey Jesus my man I'd be like today like hey give me a hug buddy that's the depth of betrayal and it's underscored by the kiss and it also let's just say there was going to be some type of resistance or battle the the soldiers there don't know exactly what to expect so hey, I, the guy but the guy a kiss that's the one maybe you can get in quick before anything happens that's, that could be another dimension to it okay um let's see here joshua i see a lot of discussion about the moral law contained in old testament law and the delineation seems subjective of what each teacher is comfortable with i'd like to hear your answer on what criteria we can use to objectively determine if a command in the old testament is part of the moral law or not okay in christian teaching through the centuries it has been common to distinguish between moral law, ceremonial law, and civil law. And it's, it's a helpful distinction in many ways, but it's not one that's made within the Torah text itself. So a moral law would be honor your father and your mother. A Moral law would be don't commit adultery. A ceremonial law would be if you touch a dead body that you are ritually unclean, through the evening till the next day, and have to then wash yourself in purification waters to be clean. A civil law would be that you are to appoint judges to handle certain legal cases. So the normal formulation would be that the moral law continues on Christians today, followers of Jesus, both Jew and Gentile, that the ceremonial law was only for ancient Israel under the Sinai covenant, and The civil law can give guidance to countries for their constitutions. It can give guidance to communities in terms of laws to pass, but is not binding today. Civil law, for example, would have included slavery under the Sinai Covenant. So how do you sort this out? On the one hand, for teaching purposes, it's a useful distinction. But when you read through the Sinai Covenant, when you read through the passages dealing with the law, they're often just all intertwined together. Read through Leviticus 8, 19, part of what's called the holiness code, and you'll see things that seem ceremonial tied in together with things that are moral. And then where do you put the Sabbath, for example? It's one of the 10 commandments. Is that just ceremonial? Because it's not dealing with a moral issue of behavior between human beings before God. So even, even there you see that there's room for debate. However, we do agree that the moral standards of the Torah are now written on the hearts of believers. You say, well, how do I know what they are? Very simple. Either they are given as being for all people. As for example, Leviticus 18 laws prohibiting certain sexual relations. When you read Leviticus 18, you see that it says God judged the Canaanites for these sins the end of Leviticus 18, that the land vomited them out. And if Israel is to repeat those transgressions, they will be vomited out. Uh, So is the ethic repeated in the prophets for the nations? Is is it repeated in, in Proverbs as a principle for all people? Is it repeated in the New Testament? If it's only found in the five books of Moses, if it is not specified there, that it is for others as well as Israel if it is not reiterated anywhere else in the rest of the Old Testament, prophets, Proverbs, other books, if it is never referenced, referred to, reiterated, reinforced in the New Testament, then you could say, well, it's not for today. But what you'll see is every important moral issue in the Old Testament or in the Torah is then reinforced elsewhere. It could be the call for righteousness and justice reinforced in the in the Prophets. It could be principles of moral conduct reinforced in Proverbs. It could be moral code reinforced by Jesus or by Paul or Peter in the New Testament. So you will see it reinforced either given as for all people, not just Israel, but Israel and others, or also reinforced elsewhere in the Hebrew scriptures. Okay, let's go to Chaz. Where was Jesus' father, Joseph, during his ministry? Sounds like he had passed away, judging by John's gospel. Is there any clarity on his absence? No, we, we don't know definitively. We know through Luke's gospel in the second chapter that Joseph was alive when Jesus was 12 years old. But after that, we have no record and there's no reference to him. There's a the reference to his mother, Mary, Miriam. There's the reference to his brothers and sisters, but there is no reference to his father. Most scholars assume then that Jesus suffered bereavement, that Yeshua's father died somewhere before he went into public ministry, perhaps even still in his childhood. So we know he's there through his 12th year. After that, we have no record, the presumption being that he died during that time before Jesus entered public ministry. But that's just an interesting thing to think that the son of God who was also fully human experienced bereavement. Not only did he suffer for our sins, not not only did he live in this world and see the pain in the world, but presumably suffered bereavement in his own life, the loss of his father. Interesting to think about that. Okay, let's see. Um, Grace, is there a commentary in the book of Proverbs that you'd recommend that explains the meaning of each or most verses with the contextual background. Also, is there any particular reason that God chose the Middle East as the place to begin life and the Israelites as his chosen people? Let me answer the second question first. There may be reasons of which we do not know that God chose to reveal himself to peoples in the Middle East and begin his work of redemption there. There may be reasons beyond what we know. But the Fertile Crescent area there was an early hub for world civilizations in Egypt and in Mesopotamia. And what becomes Israel is right in the middle there. So with the Nile on on the southern side and on the western side, and then with the Euphrates River going up to to the north and then heading east, that right in there, you go over the Euphrates, between Euphrates and Tigris, you have the Mesopotamian civilization. You, you go uh, past the Nile and, and that whole region there, you have Egyptian civilization. And then out of that, what's blossoming in Africa. So it, it seemed to be a meeting ground of ancient civilizations. Now, was the Garden of Eden originally there? Was there something spiritual, s- some type of, of reason that God originally uh, planted his, his, his garden there? Was it that it was spiritually significant because that's where he put it? it? Was the Garden of Egypt originally in the Iraq region? I mean, there's a lot of debate about that. And and there's one river that doesn't seem to fit with the others unless Kush has a different meaning. It doesn't mean Ethiopia, it means something else because the other rivers seem to be more uh, towards what would be Iraq rather than Africa. But uh, ultimately, God could have birthed things in any place, but it was an ideal place in that it was in the middle of major ancient civilizations and a place where God could reveal himself in an early way to the world, triumph over the gods of the other nations and their sophisticated religious beliefs and demonstrate that he was the God of Israel alone. We'll be right back.
1: of fire with your host dr michael brown get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH here again is dr michael brown
0: thanks friends for joining us on the line of fire this is a special broadcast as i am en route to israel for just our third ever tour i've ministered there of course many times but just our third ever ask dr brown tour can't wait for that to get started and hopefully in a future time you can join us and those who've been on past tours know how amazing and special and wonderful these tours are. There's no place like the land of Israel. I'm not taking calls, but I am answering questions previously posted on Facebook, so don't post now. I've solicited these already and I'm answering them. So Grace asked about a good commentary on the book of Proverbs. There's a, there's a classic from, oh, a few hundred years ago, Charles Bridges on Proverbs. Charles Bridges. It's more this type of, uh, the type of, of Puritan commentary, very edifying, lots of great insights, fascinating quotes. Uh, it, it is understanding of the Hebrew, but is not focusing on taking the Hebrew part in every verse, etc., or giving a ton of ancient Eastern background. But I always enjoy that just for edifying purposes. Now, for a more modern commentary that will give you background, that will open up the meaning of the verse, that will dig into the Hebrew, perhaps one of the most accessible is Robert Alden A. L. D. E. N. I'm looking at it now. Proverbs: A commentary on an ancient book of timeless advice. You, it came out in the 80s. You you want to try to get something that is accessible. That uh, as I'm thinking of, of what you're looking for, something that deals intelligent with the Hebrew, something that understands the ancient Near Eastern background and something, though, that is also trying to convey the spiritual meaning. Like, for example, there are technical commentaries that will get you into every detail of Hebrew grammatical and philological discussion and give you massive ancient and recent background, but no spiritual application and none at the end, like, okay, here's what it really means. So uh, Alden is good on that. Also, if you want one, a, a little shorter, but one that I've also always enjoyed as well, Derek Kidner, Derek, middle initial F, Kidner. Uh, one that I always enjoyed using over the years, his commentary on Proverbs. Again, edifying, he's a good Old Testament scholar, so when you need the background, he can bring it in when necessary, but that's a good, helpful, edifying commentary as well. All right, <clears throat> let me go back to my Facebook screen. Hey, brother, thank you so much for your ministry. Well, you're well it's Joshua and Dana. Joshua and Dana. Well, you are very welcome. What scripture do you go to when challenging a Calvinist concerning their belief on the elect? Okay, <clears throat> so let me first give the Calvinist side. The Calvinist side is that unconditional election is is right at the heart of Calvinist beliefs. That before the world began, God looked at the human race, saw us in our sin and disobedience, and chose simply by his grace and for reasons known only to him, this one saved, this one saved, this one saved, thereby passing over the others. Some call that a a, a double predestination because if you pass over, then they're necessarily damned. But let's concentrate on the saving part. And a Calvinist would say, look, we all know we were saved by God's grace. We all know it was nothing that we did in ourselves. It was the mercy of God. He gave us new birth. That's why we believe. That's why we follow him. Election is unconditional. And then that ties in with the other tenets of Calvinism, namely that human beings are totally depraved and fully sinful in themselves and capable of any spiritual good in and of themselves, that we are unconditionally elected by God, that Jesus did not die to make salvation possible for every human being, but rather to secure infallibly the salvation of the elect. That, so that's the L, T-U-L, total depravity, unconditional election, L, limited atonement, I, irresistible grace, that when God draws someone to himself, that person is irresistibly saved And P, perseverance of the saints. Those who are truly saved will persevere in holiness till the end. And it seems to be a beautiful chain called the golden chain of redemption in Calvinist circles. And I appreciate the emphasis on God's grace and I appreciate the emphasis on his keeping power. And and I agree with much of Calvinism, but obviously in these specifics, there's a difference. So I would point to the universality of atonement, meaning that Jesus died to make salvation possible for every human being. So I can look at every human being and tell them God loves you and Jesus died for you. And if you'll turn to him and put your faith in him, you can be saved. A Calvinist could say the second part, but they couldn't tell the first part, Jesus died for you. They couldn't say that or even just say unconditionally to to anyone, God loves you because they may not see it quite that way. So I believe Jesus dies on the cross, not just, to secure salvation, to make salvation possible for every human being and to infallibly secure the salvation of those who put their trust in him. So I would point to verses saying that God so loved the world and then show throughout John's gospel that the world never refers just to the elect. I would go to 1 John 2 that says that Jesus died not just for our sins, he's a propitiation not just for our sins, but those of the whole world. I would point to other passages like Ezekiel 18 and 1 Timothy 2 that would indicate God desires that all men repent. I would point to those. And then I would say, listen, when it comes to how we are saved, faith is not a work and we are called on to believe. And when we refuse to believe, God judges us and rebukes us and holds us responsible. And, and, and those who don't believe, he holds responsible. If, that, if Jesus didn't die for that person, then even if they could believe, they would be nothing to believe in because their sins are not forgiven through the cross, but they can't believe because it's not in their power to believe. It's just like telling a dead person to get out of the grave and walk. That person can't do it. And yet God holds us responsible for these things. Therefore, there is a will where we can respond to the gospel, that the gospel itself is the power of God to save and that we can say yes or no to God's gracious gift. It is all his saving. We do not save ourselves. He alone is the savior. But throughout the the word, choose, 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 choose. From the beginning of the Bible, right to Revelation 22, whoever will let him come and drink the water of life freely. I I take all those that face value and therefore would challenge the idea of unconditional election and that God predestined this one and that one to salvation and passed over others. I see that contrary to God's longing that all would be saved, his expressed desire that all would be saved, that he takes no desire in the death of the wicked, but rather that they repent that Jesus died. John three for the world, Hebrews two tasted death for every man. So lays it out as clear as it can for all, whoever will, I see these things as ultimately true. And through the gospel, people are drawn to be saved. John 12, 32, if he's lifted up on the cross, he draws all men to himself. Now, of course, Calvinists have a response to each of these verses and I have a response to each of their verses and that's why we have disagreement. But I respect the emphasis on God the Savior in Calvinism and that everything centers around him, not me. I differ in terms of some of these specific points and would point to these other verses accordingly. Best thing to do is get online, go to my website, ask Dr. Brown and type in white brown and then watch when we debate these things. I want you to hear his side as an eloquent Calvinist apologist, I want you to hear my side as someone representing the non-Calvinist side. So uh, white, Brian, you can search online also on YouTube for other debates. We did lengthier ones on his own radio show some years back. So check those out, hear both sides, and then come to your conclusions. Okay. Uh, Sarah, someone told me, Matthew 9, that combining the Old Testament, New Testament is putting old wine into new wineskins and use Matthew 9, 16, 17 as a reference. What is your view on the meaning of these verses? Thanks. So let's let's take a look at, at the verses first, because this is this is really interesting. The first question is, what do we mean by combining Old Testament, and New Testament, that they are combined? We, we, have, we have one Bible. The, the Bible of the early church, the one and only Bible of the early church was the Hebrew Bible, was what we call the Old Testament today. And what ultimately became old obsolete was not the old Testament writings, but the Sinai covenant, the old Testament itself did not become obsolete. Uh, we call it the old Testament. It, that in itself is misleading. You could call it the first Testament and the new Testament, the second Testament. All right. But Matthew nine verse 16, no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and the worst here happens. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins skins. Otherwise, the skins burst and the wine spills out and the skins are ruined, but they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. So yes, the new wine of the new covenant needs a new wineskin. It cannot fulfill its mission and purpose under the Sinai covenant and under traditional Jewish thinking of the day as it was developing. It needs new wineskin. Yes, yes, yes. At the same time, does it say that you can't put old wine into new wineskins? Does it say that? No, of course not. So of course you can put old wine, and normally old wine's considered better, right? I'm not a wine connoisseur, kind of but old wine often better, considered better. This is aged wine, but sitting for X number of years, right? So you can put old wine into new wineskins, can't you? Ah. Now, one other verse that's that's of interest, in Matthew, the 13th chapter, Jesus has been teaching in parables and all the way at the end of Matthew 13, let me grab the verse here. He's asking them, do you understand? So it's, it's verse 51, 52. Do you understand these things? He's giving them parables and they're getting, yeah, yeah, we're getting it, we're getting it. Yeah, yeah, we do, we do. <laughs> Even if they didn't, I think they'd say, yeah, yeah, we, we, we do. But I think they were getting it. Then, He said, therefore, every Torah scholar, so every scribe of the law, therefore, every Torah scholar, discipled for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out of his treasure, both new things and old. Ah, there you have it right there. So someone who is a scholar of the Torah, someone who is a teacher of the Torah, teacher of the law, and is now discipled in the things that came. He doesn't throw out the old. No, no, he now takes from the old and the new and brings it together in one glorious whole. That is the new covenant faith. The new covenant faith does not say, I'm going to get rid of all your old laws, get rid of all your old morality, get rid of all your old traditions, get rid of all your old thinking and give you something brand new. He says, no, no, rather than the Sinai covenant where the law was written on stone, the 10 commandments on stone, not on hearts, I'm going to take my Torah, I'm gonna write it on your heart. Now, sure there'll be things that are different, things that are new, things that were in the old that are not in the new, but it's 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 not a completely new Torah. It's not like you go from Moses to Muhammad, all right, or Moses to Confucius. You go from Moses to Yeshua, all within the same family. Yeshua now coming to fulfill. That which Moses said was coming and foreshadowed. The fulfillment brings to completion, to fullness, that which was promised in the past. That is gospel truth. We'll be right back.
1: Give us to always do what's right. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome
0: to our Friday broadcast on the Line of Fire. You've got questions, we've got answers. Michael Brown, delighted to be with you, but not taking your calls live today. This is a travel day for me to Israel for our Israel tour, our third Israel tour in the history of our ministry. Can't wait to be there with everyone. Would you pray that God would bless the tour group as they travel over? Would you pray that God would bless our time together? And maybe as you, you sow your prayers, God will enable you provide funds for you to come on a future tour with us to the land of Israel. Oh, and, and one special request before we dive in with a few more really interesting questions. I would really ask you to pray about joining our support team. I know some of you have been listening to us on daily radio for over 10 years. Some have been following our ministry for 20 or 30 years. It's been my joy to be a blessing to you. Some some, some of you knew me 40 years ago, preaching and ministering, and you're blessed by that but you've never been able to help financially or it's never dawned on you that we could use your help. Maybe you just discovered us on YouTube in the last three months. Maybe you've been reading my articles the last six months, but we do what we do, not with the support of a big company, not with the support of of a rich donor. We do it with the support of hundreds and thousands of people just like you. And our core team, our torchbearers, We don't have a lot of people. We don't have thousands and tens of thousands. We've got a nucleus of hundreds that needs to become thousands. Most ministries doing what we're doing have many, many, many thousands of monthly supporters. We only have in the hundreds. And by God's grace, we do what we do. We produce what some ministries with 10 times the funds are unable to produce. And it's all by God's grace and all to his glory. But if you can help us with a dollar a day or more, that's it, $30 or more per month. As a, as a gift of appreciation, we've got a beautiful TLV tree of life Bible to send you. And then every month I sew into a brand new audio message. Every month you can have access to online classes that we've recorded some audio, some video every month. You get a 15% discount in our online bookstore. Every month you get an insider prayer letter with things that are going on. There's access. You also have to our digital library. There are resources that are only available to monthly supporters. So, Join us today. If you could do that boy over in Israel, I'd I'd be shouting praises to God. And not because I'm in this for the money, quite the opposite. Our goal is to minister to as many people as as we can for free, to do Jewish outreach day and night for free, to, to expand our Jewish outreach team and what we're doing and to translate more resources into Hebrew and to record more shows to air in Israel, but we do it with your help. So you'll help us reach more, plus support our missionaries serving all around the world. You'll never give a dollar that does more good than when you give one to our ministry. So go to the website, ask Dr. Brown, askdrbrown.org and click on donate. You say, I hate it when you talk about this on the radio. Hey, we hardly do. We hardly do. But I want to give you an opportunity to be blessed and to partner with us. Askdrbrown.org, click donate and then monthly support. Okay, Marjorie, when were sacrifices stopped for the atoning of sin for the Jewish people? How have they managed since that time? they were stopped not by the choice of the Jewish people, but by divine judgment through the Romans. The Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, burned it down in the year 70 AD. So we're talking about over 1900 years now, 1930 plus years without a temple. Jews, the religious community, would gladly be at a temple sacrificing daily, offering up sacrifices for the nation and other personal sacrifices on a daily basis, uh, but there's no temple. And without the temple, without that specific location, uh, it, it cannot be done. And, and the preparation has been made, uh, altars built in priestly outfits. In fact, there was even a sacrifice offered uh, out, out, uh, outside the, the city walls recently, uh, one that was considered uh, legal to offer but yeah, they would do it in a heartbeat if they could. So what have they done for atonement? A traditional Jew would say that sacrifices were more for other purposes than atonement, but they were important for that as well. However, the biggest issue is repentance. And if they will repent, if they'll fast on the day of atonement, if they will do charitable deeds, perhaps if they suffer things in this world, that's also payment, Uh, death can be an ultimate payment, Uh, that prayer, repentance are the principal means of atonement. Now I differ. I differ with my Jewish friends on that, but that would be the answer. Volume two of answering Jewish objections to Jesus. Get that, study it. I go into the atonement issues in depth. Volume two of answering Jewish objections to Jesus. Okay, Uh, Karen, why did God create Lucifer? Actually, he didn't create Lucifer, meaning he didn't create the devil. He didn't create the one that we know as Hasatan, the Satan, the, excuse me, the adversary. Uh, No, he created one that was perfect. So you say, well, okay, but why did he do that if he knew what was going to happen? Same reason he created human beings knowing what was going to happen. Ultimately, it was with us in mind, but he created beings, these angels, and Lucifer is from Latin, Lucifer, Lucifer, which is just a light bearer. So originally, this is a beautiful description of a powerful angel, one of the lead angels. If Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 are speaking about the original fall of Lucifer, fall of of Satan, then these passages would give us insight that he was a majestic angel of very, very high rank, and yet he chose to rebel. You say, well, how can you choose to rebel if sin is not there? Free will gives the ability to say yes or no. Free will can now actualize evil. If God says, do this, we can freely choose either way. In that sense, free will is somewhat mysterious. I think you have to admit that that the angels and Adam and Eve the same way had perfect freedom to say yes or no. When they chose to say no, now sin came alive. Now evil was actualized in them. Okay, as to your bigger question, why create a Satan? Someone that becomes Satan ultimately. And Hebrew, hasatan is really the adversary, the accuser. Why? Well, God's ultimate goal was human beings to be created who would love him and serve him freely. Not with coercion, but freely. That we would be his in an intimate relationship, glorifying him, enjoying him forever. That was his goal. In order to do that, he had to put us in an environment where we could freely choose. He could have created us all just with a will that like robots. Yeah, I praise you. I praise you. I pra- Yeah, I praise you. I pra- Yeah, I praise you. I pray you just like, you know, broken records. But no, that would not be love. That would not be relationship. That would not be God. That would not bring him any pleasure. So he created us with freedom of choice, the same way as the angels. Now the angels who fell, damn, that's it. Destroyed, punished, put in chains, waiting future punishment. That's it. But human beings can now turn and be saved. In other words, we can disobey, we can say no, and then he reaches out through the cross to save us. So Satan is part of the larger drama where he's gonna try to win us over through sin and the flesh, where God is going to offer us eternal life through the cross and call us to repent. And now we can choose. So Satan as evil and diabolical as he is, ultimately comes in as part of God's larger plan and having said that, we only suffer though, in terms of as a human race, because we chose sin. That that it's not God deciding I'm gonna smash you and destroy you and hurt you just because I have nothing better to do and I enjoy doing that and I'm a sadist. No, that we bring things on ourselves. I'm talking about as a human race. I don't mean every single thing that happens. Every child born with a sickness, well, the child did it. No, no, not saying that at all. Rather as a human race, we brought destruction on ourselves, but these are by choices we made. Satan ends up being part of that larger drama. Okay. Paul, is modern Pentecostalism similar to Montanism? We get accused of it, but is there anything to it? And if no, what's the difference? As most of you know, I am not a church historian and I'm not an expert on church movements, early church, later church movements, but the Montanists were a group that were deemed heretical by many in the early church, that they flourished especially in the second century, so a hundred plus years after the time of Jesus, and they were known for their emphasis on prophetic revelation. Now, you say, well that sounds like modern Pentecostals charismatics, I guess the early church would consider us heretics. That's what some folks believe. I've been Brown's just a montanist apologist. He's a hellbound Montanist Apologist whatever, you know, they may not add the hell bound in there with false teacher, Montanist apologist. And then I'm a t- particular type of Montanist. I've actually look up some of the terms because I'm not familiar with them, but there are clear references in the early church uh, to that time and after to speaking in various tongues, to prophecy, to healing, to miracles for centuries. So, Again, as someone who's not a scholar on Montanism, to the extent that these believers held to orthodox beliefs, the same as the fundamentals of the church, which most agree they did, and to a strong morality. If anything, they had a higher moral standard. There's legalism, God knows, it's another subject. But if they held to the basics of the gospel, and again, I'm no expert on this, and to biblical morality, and just overemphasize prophecy, well, that's not heretical, that's just an error. If they claimed they were getting new revelation that was equal to the Bible or superseded the Bible, then that would be a serious error to be rejected. The modern Pentecostal charismatic movement follows in the traditions of the early church that believed in the gifts and the power of the spirit for today, that practiced these things and, and believed that there was prophetic ministry, but it was not all supernaturally inspired in the same way scripture was rather if it was not written in the word then it was of a different inspiration and it had to be tested by the word and the life of course of the alleged a prophet or apostle had to be tested as well from my book dealing with abuses in the modern pentecostal charismatic movement as a pentecostal charismatic myself get playing with holy fire playing with holy fire a wake-up call to the pentecostal charismatic church where i deal with serious abuses in the midst of the great things god is doing with that god bless touch on monday